Boston meal, she researched places in New York. Omakase, she realized, suited them in different ways. They both liked the element of surprise, but she could second-guess herself with long menus and he preferred to go with the flow. She had taught him that in Japanese, omakase means, I'll leave it up to you, and that the end of each meal, she paid. Logical, as she made more, and trying omakase had become one of their things. She liked that they had things. Opposites attract. This week on Selected Shorts. I'm Michael Cerverus, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. Life's significant events like births, deaths, and marriages can teach us a lot about ourselves. But there's also something to be said about the small moments. A simple meal or a brisk walk can unfold in ways we never imagined. In this episode of Selected Shorts, our stories show us private moments and what they reveal. Our first story is so intimate, its events are confined to the interior of a linen closet. The author is the writer A.M. Holmes, whose works include music for torching and May We Be Forgiven. While she often considers extremes in human behavior, this story shares a moment of quiet reflection. The actor reading this story is Beth Malone, whom I had the great pleasure of performing alongside in Fun Home on Broadway. Now, Beth Malone reads Yours Truly by A.M. Holmes. I'm hiding in the linen closet, writing letters to myself. This is the place where no one knows I am, where I can think without thinking about what anyone else would think, or at least it's quiet. I don't want to scare anyone, but things can't go on like this. Until today, I could still go into the living room and talk to my mother's Saturday morning fat club. I could say, hi, how are you? That's a nice dress. Magenta is such a good color, it hides the hips. Nice shoes, too. I would never have thought of bringing pink and green together like that. I could pretend to be okay, but that's part of the problem. In here, pressed up against the towels, the sheets, the heating pad, it's clear that everything is not hunky-dory. I got one of those itty-bitty book lights and I'm making notes. Today is Odessa's day. At any minute, she might turn the knob and let the world, disguised as daylight, come flooding in. She might do that and never know what she's done. She'll open the door and her eyes will get wide. She'll look at me and she'll say, Lord. She'll say, you could have given me a heart attack. And I'll think, yes, I could have, but I'm having one myself and there isn't room for two in the same place at the same time. She'll look at my face and I have to look at the floor. She won't know that having someone look directly at me, having someone expect me to look at her causes a sharp pain that begins in my eyes, ricochets off my skull, and in the end makes my entire skeleton shake. She won't know that I can't look at anything except the towels without being overcome with emotion. She won't know that at the sight of another person I weep. I wish to embrace and be embraced and then to kill. She won't get that I'm dangerous. Odessa will open the door and see me standing with this tiny light clipped in the middle shelf with the pad of paper on the top of some blankets with some extra pencil sticking out of the space between the bath sheets and the Turkish towels. She'll see all this and she'll ask, are you all right? I won't be able to answer and I can't tell her why I'm standing in a closet filled with enough towels to take a small town to the beach. I won't say, I'm not all right. God help me, I am not. 
I will simply stand here, resting my arm over my notepad like a child taking a test, trying to make it difficult for cheaters to get their work done. Odessa will do the talking, she'll say. Well, if you could excuse me, I need clean sheets for the beds. I'll move over a little bit. I'll twist to the left so she can get to the twin and the queen sizes. I'm willing to move for Odessa. I can put one foot on top of the other. I'll do anything for her as long as I don't have to put my feet onto the gray carpet in the hall. I can't. I'm not ready. If I put a foot out there too early, everything will be lost. Odessa sometimes asks me, which sheets do you want on your bed? She knows I'm particular about these things. She knows her color combinations, dots and stripes together, attack me in my sleep. <laughs> Sometimes I get up in the middle of the night, pull the sheets off the bed, throw them into the hall, and return to sleep. She will ask me what I want, and I'll point the plain white ones, the ones that seem lighter, cleaner than all the others. Odessa reaches for the sheets, and in the instant, when they're in her hands but still in the closet, I press my face into them. I press my face into the pile of sheets, into Odessa's hands underneath. I won't feel her skin, her fingers, only cool, clean fabric against my cheek. I inhale deeply as if there was a way to draw the sheets into my lungs, to hold the linen inside me. I breathe and take my head away. Odessa will pull her hands out of the closet and ask, do you want the door closed? I nod. I turn away, draw in my breath, and make myself flat. She closes the door. I'm hiding in the linen closet, sending memos to myself. It's getting complicated. Odessa knows I'm here. She knows, but she won't tell anybody. She won't go running into the living room and announce, Jody's locked herself in the linen closet and won't come out. Odessa won't go outside and look for my father. She won't find him pulling weeds on the hill behind the house. Odessa won't tell him, she's in there with the paper and pencils that the light that you gave her for Christmas. She won't say anything. Odessa understands that this is the way things sometimes are. She'll change the sheets on all the beds, serve the fat club ladies their cottage cheese and cantaloupe, and then she'll go downstairs into the bathroom and take a few sips from the bottle of Johnny Walker she keeps inside there. I'm hiding in the linen closet with my life suspended. I'm hiding and I'm scared to death. I want to come clean to see myself clearly, in detail, like a hallucination, a deathbed vision, a coat of color photograph. I need to know if I'm alive or dead. I'm hiding in the linen closet and I want to introduce myself to myself. I need to like what I see. If I am really as horrible as I feel, I will spontaneously combust, leaving a small heap of ashes that can be picked up with a dustbuster. I will explode myself in a flash of fire, leaving a letter of most profuse apology. Through the wall, I hear my mother's fat club ladies laugh. I hear the rattle of the group and the gentle tinkling of the individual. It's as though I have more than one pair of ears. Each voice enters in a different place with a different effect. I hear them and realize they're laughing for me. They're celebrating the fact that I can no longer pretend. There are tears in my eyes. I'm saying thank you and goodbye. I'm writing it down because I can't simply go out there and stand at the edge of the dining room table until my mother looks up from her copy of Eating Yourself Slim Diet and says, yes. I can't say I'm leaving because she'll ask, when will you be back? She'll be looking through the book, flipping through the menus, seeing how many ounces she can eat. If I tell the truth, if I say never, 
She'll look up at me. Peering up higher than usual above the frameless edges of her reading glasses, she'll say, a comedian, hmm, <laughs> maybe Johnny Carson will hire you as a guest host, huh? When will you be back? If I go without answering, the other ladies will watch me leave. When I get to where they think I can't hear them, when I get to the kitchen door, they'll put a pause in their meeting and talk about their children. They'll say, they were always the best parents they knew how to be. They'll say, they gave their children everything and it was never enough. They'll say, they hope their children will grow up and have children exactly like themselves. <laughs> they'll be thinking about how their children hate them and how they hate their children back because they don't understand what it is they did wrong. It has nothing to do with you, I'll have to say. It's me. It's me. It's all mine. There is no blame. Selfish, the mothers will say. I'm here in the linen closet doing my spring cleaning. I'm, I'm confessing right and left, and Odessa knocks on the door. She knocks, and then she opens the door. She's carrying a plate with a sandwich and a glass of milk. Only Odessa would serve milk in a sandwich. My mother would give me a tab with a twist of lemon. My father would make something like club soda with a bit of syrup in it. He would use maple syrup and then spend all afternoon telling me how he'd invented something new, something better than the other sodas because it had no chemicals, less sugar, and no caffeine. Odessa brings me a sandwich and a glass of milk, and it looks like a television commercial. The bread is white, the sandwich cut perfectly in half, there are no finger marks on it, no indentations on the white bread where Odessa put her fingers while she was cutting. The glass is full except for an inch at the top. There are no spots in that inch. The milk looks white and thick with small bubbles near the top. It looks cool and refreshing. Odessa hands me the plate. I look at her for a moment. She is perfect. I drink the milk and know that I will have a mustache. I look at Odessa and I want to say, I love you. I want to tell her how no one else would bring me a glass of milk. I want to tell her everything, but she starts talking. Odessa says, make sure you don't leave the plate in the closet. I don't want your mother finding it and thinking I've lost my mind. I don't want bugs in here. Bring it out and put the dish in the dishwasher. Don't stay in there all day or you'll lose your color. <laughs> I nod, she closes the door. I'm hiding and I'm eating a cream cheese and cucumber sandwich and having my head examined. I'm in the neighborhood of my soul and I'm getting worried. I'm trying not to hate myself so much, trying not to hate my body, my mind, the thoughts I think. I'm hiding in the linen closet, having a sex change. I'm in here with a pad of paper writing things I've thought and then unthought, thoughts that seemed like incest, like they shouldn't be allowed. I'm trying to find some piece of myself that is truly me, a part that I will be willing to wear like a jewel around my neck, my foot. I love my foot. If I had to send part of myself to represent myself in some other country or in some other way, I would amputate my foot and set it wrapped in white tissue on a silk embroidered cushion. I would send my foot because it is me more than I'm willing to let on. There are other parts that are also good, hands, eyes, mouth, but after a few months, I might look at them and not see the truth. After a few years, I might look at them and think of someone else, but my foot, mine. 
all mine, the real thing. There is no mistaking it. I look at it, I take off my sock, and it screams my name. I could go on for hours demonstrating how well I know myself through my foot, but I won't. It's embarrassing. The foot, my foot, that I wish to wear on a ribbon around my neck is an example of grace twisted and trapped. Chunks of bone and flesh conforming to the dictum. Form follows function. It's a wonder I'm not a cripple. I'm hiding in the linen closet, writing a declaration of independence. I'm in the closet, but the worst is over. There is hope trapped inside my foot. Inside my soul, there is possibility. I'm looking at myself, and slowly, I'm falling in love. I've figured out what it takes to live forever. I'm in love, and I'm free. I want to throw open the door and hear an orchestra swell. I want to run out to the fat club ladies and tell them life can go on. I'm in love. I'll stand in the living room, facing the sofa. I'll stand with my arms spread wide, the violins reaching their pitch. I'll be sweating and shaking, unsteady on my feet, my wonderful, loving, lovable feet. At the end of my proclamation, my mother will let her glasses fall from her face and dangle from the cord around her neck. Miss Dramatic, she'll say. Weren't you an actress? The fat ladies will look at each other. They'll look at me and think of other declarations of love. They'll look and one will ask, who's the lucky man? There will be a silence while they wait for a name, preferably the right kind of name. If I tell them it isn't a man, their silence will grow, and they'll expect what they think is the worst. No one except my mother will have the nerve enough to ask, a girl then? I'll be forced to tell them. It's not like that. One of the ladies, the one the others think isn't so smart, will ask, what's it like? <laughs> I'll smile. The orchestra will swell. And I'll look at the four ladies sitting on the sofa, the sofa covered with something modern and green, something that vaguely resembles the turf of a putting green. It's like falling in love with life itself, I'll say. My mother will look around the room. She'll look anywhere except at me. Are you all right? She'll ask when I stop to catch my breath. You look a little flushed. I'll be singing and dancing. I'm fine, I'm wonderful, I'm better than before, I'm in love. I'll sing, and on the end note, cymbals will crash, and the sound will hold in the air for a minute, and then, swinging a top hat and cane, I'll dance away, I'll dance down the hall toward the den. I want to find my father in the den, the family room, watching tennis on television. I want to catch him in the middle of a set and say that I can't wait for a break. I want to tell him life must go on. He'll say that it's match point. He'll say he's been trying to tell me that all along. But why didn't you tell me what it really means? It seemed pretty obvious. And then I'll tell him I'm in love. There will be a pause. Someone will have the advantage. My feet will go clickety-clack over the parquet floor, and he'll say, yes, you sound very happy. You sound like you're not quite yourself. I'm more myself than I've ever been. I want to find Odessa. Life will go on, I'll tell her. I'm in love. 
I'll take her by the hand and we'll dance in circles around the recreation room. We'll dance until we're dizzy and Odessa will ask me, are you all right? I'll only be able to mumble, mm-hmm, because my grin will have set like cement. I'm hiding in the linen closet, writing love letters to myself. That was Yours Truly by A.M. Holmes, performed by Beth Malone. Her performance in that reading reminds me so much of her performance in Fun Home. It, uh, it was largely silent in many sections of, of the musical, but her ability to tell a story even in silence and through observation is remarkable, and she's one of our great storytellers. When we return, one revealing meal... You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Michael Cerberus. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. And while you're at it, subscribe to our spin-off podcast, Selected Shorts Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for both shows on iTunes and hit subscribe. On this Selected Shorts, we're listening to stories about the intimate and unlikely moments that help us grow. The title of our next piece, Omakase, refers to a tasting menu chosen by the sushi chef at a Japanese restaurant. While the couple in this story seems to have an ordinary dining experience, there's a lot happening in those conversational pauses. The story's author is the exciting talent Waiki Wang. Her debut novel, Chemistry, won the Penn Hemingway Award in 2018. And this story was featured in The New Yorker, The Best American Short Stories, and The O. Henry Prize Stories 2019. Our reader is Jennifer Lim, an actor whose work includes the Broadway production of David Henry Huang's Chinglish. Here she is reading Waiki Wang's Omakase. The couple decided that tonight they were going out for sushi. Two years ago, they met online. Three months ago, they moved in together. Previously, she'd lived in Boston, but now she lived in New York with him. The woman was a research analyst at a bank downtown. The man was a ceramic potter at a studio uptown. Both were in their late 30s, and neither of them wanted kids. Both enjoyed Asian cuisine, specifically sushi, specifically omakase, for which you only needed to say that word and the chef would start preparing a multi-course meal. The sushi place was a hole in the wall. When they arrived, she thought he had been kidding. But as he had described, it was a tiny room with an empty bar and a cash register. Behind the bar stood an old sushi chef. Behind the cash register sat a young waitress. 
The man had found it on a list of top sushi places in central Harlem. Not that there were many, so it could have been a list of all sushi places. <laughs> Upon entering, the woman gave the man a look. The look said, is this it? Usually for sushi, they went downtown to places that were brightly lit, crowded and did not smell so strongly of fish. But tonight, downtown trains were suffering extensive delays from someone jumping onto the tracks at Port Authority and getting hit. That was something the woman had to get used to about New York. In Boston, the subway never got you anywhere, but the stations were clean and quiet and no one bothered you on the actual train. There were also rarely delays from people jumping in front of trains. Probably because trains came so infrequently, there were quicker ways to die. In New York, the subways generally got you where you needed to go, but you had to endure a lot. Within her first month here, the woman had already seen someone pee in the corner of a car. She'd been solicited for money numerous times, and if she didn't have money, the same person would ask for food or pencils or a tissue. On her first trip to Brooklyn on the L, she had almost been kicked in the face by a pole-dancing kid. She refused to give him any money. You worry too much, the man said to the woman, whenever she brought up that she did not feel at home in New York. And not only did she not feel at home, she felt in constant danger. You exaggerate, the man replied. At the restaurant, he gave the woman a look of his own. This look said two things. One, you worry too much. And two, this is fun. I'm having fun, now you have fun. <laughs> she was having fun, but she also didn't want to get food poisoning. As if having read her mind, he said, if you do get sick, you can blame me. But that doesn't change the fact that I'll be sick. He shrugged and took her hand. Eventually, the waitress noticed the couple had arrived. She'd been busy picking polish off her nails. She looked up, but didn't get up, and instead waved them to the bar. Sit anywhere you like, she said sleepily. Then she disappeared behind a black curtain embroidered with the Chinese character of the sun. When they first started dating, they'd agreed that if there weren't any red flags, and there weren't, they would try to make it work. To make things fair, they each tried to find jobs in the other city. Not surprisingly, the demand for financial analysts in New York was much higher than the demand for ceramic potters in Boston. <laughs> Huzzah, he texted the day the movers arrived at her old apartment. She texted back a smiley face, then later a picture of the pile of things she was donating so that when they moved in together, they would not have, for example, two dining room sets, seven paring knives, and so on. She was one of those people, the kind to create an Excel spreadsheet of items she owned and send it to him so he could highlight the items he owned and specify quantity and type. Since it might make sense to have seven paring knives if they were of different thickness and length and could pair different things. He was one of these people, the kind to look at an Excel spreadsheet and squint. Before the big move, she had done some research on the best time to drive into the city with a large moving truck and not take up too much space on the street. It would pain her if the moving truck was responsible for a blocked intersection and a mess of cars honking nonstop. 
the internet said to avoid the angriest of New Yorkers during rush hour, try 5 a.m. <laughs> when she arrived at 5 a.m., he was waiting for her in the lobby of his building with a coffee, an extra sweatshirt, and an enthusiastic kiss. After the kiss, he handed her an extra set of keys. There were four in total. One for the building, one for the trash room, one for the mailbox, one for their apartment door. Because all the keys looked the same, he said it might take her a month to figure out which one was which. But it took her a day. She was happy that he was happy. She would frequently wonder, but never ask, if he had looked for a job as diligently as she had. I'll just have the water, said the man when the waitress gave them each a hot cup of tea. It was eight degrees outside, and the waitress explained that the tea, wheat, was paired intentionally with the Pacific Ocean oyster, which was the first course of the omakase. The waitress looked no older than 18. She was Asian, with a diamond nose piercing and a purple lower lip ring. When talking to her, the woman could only stare at the ring and bite her own lip. The woman was also Asian, Chinese, and seeing another Asian with facial piercings only reminded her of all the things she could not get away with as a kid. Her parents were immigrants, so imagine coming home to them with a lip ring. Her parents would have first made her take the ring out, then they would have slapped her. Then they would have reminded her that a lip ring made her look like a hoodlum, and in this country, not everyone will give someone with an Asian face the benefit of the doubt. If she looked like a hoodlum, then she couldn't get into college. If she couldn't get into college, then she might as well go to jail. <laughs> Ultimately, a lip ring like that could only land her in jail. <laughs> what other purpose did it serve? She was not joining the circus. She was not part of an indigenous tribe. She was not Marilyn Manson. Her father, for some strange reason, knew who Marilyn Manson was. Then in jail, she could make friends with other people wearing lip rings and form a gang. Is that what you want as a career? Her parents would have asked, to form a lip ring gang in jail? And she would have answered, no. Tea it is, said the man. He smiled at the pretty waitress. She was pretty. The purple lip ring matched the purple streak in her hair, which matched the purple nail polish. Nevertheless, the man complimented the waitress's unremarkable black uniform. The waitress returned the favor by complimenting the man's circular frames. Oh, these silly things, the man said, lifting his glasses off his nose for a second. They're not silly, the waitress said, matter of fact. They're cool. My boyfriend couldn't pull them off. He doesn't have the head shape for it. If the man lost interest, he didn't show it. If anything, knowing that the pretty waitress had a boyfriend only made the flirtation more fun. Kids now were so different, the woman thought. She didn't date until after college. She had never colored her hair. But the waitress might have had parents who were born here, which meant different expectations or parenting so opposed to the way they had been brought up by their strict immigrant parents that there were basically no expectations. Another possibility, the waitress could have been adopted, in which case, all bets were off. <laughs> Kids now were not only different, but lucky, the woman thought. She wanted to say to the waitress, you have no idea 
how hard some of us worked so that you could dye your hair purple and pierce your lower lip. The man nudged the woman who was sitting next to him like a statue. You're staring, he said. The waitress had noticed too and huffed off. The mug that the tea came in was handleless. The tea was so hot that neither of them could pick up the handleless mug comfortably. They could only blow at the steam, hoping that it would soon cool and mention to each other how hot it was. Until now, the sushi chef had not said a word to the couple, but it seemed to aggravate him as he prepared the Pacific Ocean oyster to see them not drink the tea. This is the Japanese way, he finally said. He ungloved both hands and reached over the bar for the woman's mug. He then held the mug delicately at the very top with two fingertips and a thumb. The other hand was placed under the mug like a saucer. This is the Japanese way, he said again. He handed the mug back to the woman. The couple tried to mimic the chef, but perhaps their skin was thinner than his, and holding it the Japanese way didn't hurt any less than sticking their hands into boiling water. <laughs> the man put the mug down. The woman, however, did not want to offend the chef and kept holding the mug until her hands went numb. Now that the man knew the chef could speak English, he tried to talk to him. What kind of mug is this? He asked. It looks handmade. The glaze is magnificent, the man continued. Then he turned to the woman and pointed at how the green-blue glazes of their mugs seemed to differ. The layering, he said, was different, subtly darker and thicker in some places than others. Hmm, the woman said. To her, a mug was a mug. It's a you-know-me, isn't it? He said to the chef. Taller than it is wide, handleless. Yes, handleless, with a trimmed foot, used in traditional tea ceremonies. The chef looked suspiciously at the man. Maybe he was wondering if the man was fucking with him, as people sometimes did when they encountered a different culture, and in an effort to tease, came off as incredibly earnest, only to draw enthusiasm out of the person being teased, until the person looked foolish from believing the other person cared. He's a potter, the woman said. The man quickly turned to her as if to say, why did you just do that? Then he began to laugh, leaning back and almost falling off his bar seat. I'm sorry, he said to the chef. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. The mug is beautiful, and you should be proud to have something like this in your kitchen. I would be. The chef said thanks, and served them their first piece of fish on similarly green-blue ceramic plates that the man promised not to scrutinize. Enjoy, the chef said, and gave them a steady thumbs up. The man responded with his own thumbs up. The woman liked how easily the man took things. He was a fun guy, a natural extrovert. By now, the woman knew that while he worked alone in his studio, he not only enjoyed the company of others, but needed it. When out, he talked to anyone and everyone. Sometimes it was jokey talk, the kind she saw between him and the sushi chef. Sometimes it was playful banter, the kind she saw between him and the pretty waitress. The flirting didn't bother the woman. Instead, it made her feel good that the man was desired. He was not handsome, but he had a friendly smile and rosy cheeks. The word wholesome came to mind. Their first official date was on Skype. 
They each bought a bottle of wine and then watched the same movie together on their respective laptop screens. <laughs> he suggested House of Flying Daggers, and she said she was okay watching something that wasn't so overtly Chinese, and no offense to the talented Zhang Yimou, so old school. What do you mean old school, he had asked. I mean the Tang Dynasty, she said. She was more than happy to watch mainstream films set in modern day with storylines based on white people. She didn't need the man to make her feel comfortable if this was, in fact, what he was trying to do. But it's a critically acclaimed movie, he had replied. So they ended up watching House of Flying Daggers. The entire movie was in Chinese and had English subtitles. As they got tipsier, the man asked the woman if the subtitles were all correct. I guess the woman said, even though she only understood half of what they said and was reading the English herself. <laughs> the man knew much more about wuxia than she did. He also knew much more about the Tang Dynasty, especially the pottery. In the Tang Dynasty, the Chinese had perfected high-fired celadon and experimented with cobalt blue glazes. They were known for producing these things called three-colored glazes. He even said the Chinese word, San cai. You would know the glaze if you saw it, he said after the movie was over, and the wine had been drunk. The next day, he sent her a picture of a Tang Dynasty camel in San cai glaze. It was the same camel that had been sitting next to her mother's fireplace for the last 25 years. The woman asked her friends. She had mostly Asian friends, but a few non-Asian friends as well. Red flag? She did not want to continue with this man if he was interested in her because she was Chinese. She had heard of these men, especially the kind you might meet on the internet. She didn't like the phrase yellow fever, the name for the attraction, but also a mosquito-borne disease that killed one out of four people infected. Her closest friends told her she was doing what she did best, overthinking and picking out imaginary flaws. Hence why she was still single at 36. Obviously, a potter would know the history of pottery. And he probably liked House of Flying Daggers as a movie. Come on, one of her non-Asian friends said. All guys think martial arts is cool. Come on, one of her Asian friends said. He just wanted to impress you. We'll see, she replied. For their next Skype date, he suggested a romantic comedy set in England starring white people. The following week, he suggested an American action movie. The week after, a Russian spy movie. After the movie, they chatted first about the movie and then other things. He told her that he'd been in a few serious relationships, the most recent of which ended a year ago. What kind of girl was she? The woman asked. And as if reading her mind, he said Jewish. The one before, Scandinavian. He didn't suggest watching a Chinese movie again. When they visited each other, they didn't eat at Chinese places, but at French, Italian, and Japanese places. She was excited that he had passed her test and was turning out to be a regular guy. He met most of her friends who afterward found a way to tell her how lucky she was. They stopped short, but the implication was how lucky she was to have found someone like him. Single, American, an artist, and her age. By American, some of her Asian friends also meant white, the implication being that she was somehow marrying up or climbing the social ladder. She hadn't thought any of these things before, but now she did. 
Or maybe she had thought all of those things before and was just now admitting to them. Eventually, the woman felt comfortable enough to ask the man why he had picked House of Flying Daggers for their first date. It was a random choice, he casually said. That day, the movie had popped up on his browser as a recommendation. It was critically acclaimed, he said again. So it seemed settled. The Chinese factor was not a factor. They were merely one out of a billion or so Asian girl white guy couples on this planet. The sushi chef worked quickly with his hands, and the woman could not help but be mesmerized. From a giant wooden tub of warmed rice, he scooped out two tiny balls. He molded the balls into elongated dollops. Then he pressed a slice of fish on top of the rice using two fingers, the index and middle, pressing firmly down the glistening spine, turning the nigiri in the palm of his hand as if displaying a shiny toy car. As a final touch, he dipped a delicate brush into a bowl of soy sauce and lightly painted the tops of the cars. For certain pieces, he wrapped a thin piece of nori around the nigiri. For others, he took out a blowtorch and seared the fish skin. The woman was impressed. This chef looked like he belonged at the Four Seasons. In between courses, he wiped down his cooking station and spoke with them. He spoke softly, which meant the couple had to listen carefully and not eat too loudly. The man said they lived only a few blocks from here. The chef lived in Queens, but was originally from Tokyo. The man said he must have seen the chef working here before. The chef said that was impossible. The man insisted he had, as he walked by this restaurant every day, and though he never went in, he would peek inside and see a chef. You, he said. The chef chuckled. Why do you laugh? Because this is my first day working here. <laughs> oh, said the man, but refusing to admit that he'd been wrong, pushed on. He asked if the restaurant was family run. He might not have seen the chef as in you, but a brother or a friend. The chef must have come in for an interview or to learn from the previous chef. At this point, the woman put a hand on the man's thigh. The chef chuckled again. He looked at the woman and she felt herself unable to meet his gaze. It is not a family-run business, he clarified. He did not know the previous chef. He had only been hired yesterday. He had interviewed by phone. <laughs> the man finally let the topic slide and the woman was relieved. If he had continued, she would have had to remind the man in a roundabout way that he sounded insensitive. The roundabout way would have probably involved some kind of joke like, oh, don't think all of us look the same, and the man would have laughed, and the woman would have laughed, and the chef would have chuckled. It would have been said this way as the woman knew the man hadn't wanted to come off as insensitive. He had just wanted to be right. Also, the woman didn't want to be one of those people who noted every teeny tiny thing and racialized it. Wasn't it something she and her Asian friends joked about as well? That they did all look the same if you considered how a person is described by hair and eye color. Yet, there was a difference. And for a moment, the woman felt a kinship with the chef. But that moment passed. After the couple finished their tea, the waitress came back and started them off on a bottle of unfiltered sake. The waitress was still miffed from earlier. She only spoke to the man, explaining that the nigori had herbal notes and hints of chrysanthemum. The woman tossed her sake back and couldn't taste either. 
The man hovered his nose over his cup for a long minute and said that he could smell subtle hints of something. Alcohol, the woman said. No, something else. Chrysanthemum? That and something else. The woman wanted to add that perhaps what the man was smelling was bullshit because the waitress was clearly making everything up. How the woman knew this was that she had read the back of the bottle and the description said, fruity nose with hints of citrus. What's wrong with me, the woman thought. She was getting riled up over nothing. The man rubbed a finger under her chin, and she felt better, but not entirely right. The chef smiled at them while slicing two thin pieces of snapper. When enough time had passed, the man began chatting with the chef again. He was curious, he said. The sushi was delicious, and he was wondering where the chef had worked before. His experience showed. Speaking on behalf of both of them, the man continued. He hadn't had omakase like this ever, and they usually went to some of the best places in the city. Like where? asked the chef. The man listed the places, and the chef nodded in approval, and the man beamed. The woman felt a need to interject. Many of these omakase places had been her suggestion. When they first started dating, the man knew what omakase was, but had never tried it. He said the opportunity never came up, and the woman wondered if this was code for, I didn't know how. So, for one of their early in-person dates, she took him to a place in Boston. She knew the chef, who was Chinese. Many Chinese chefs turned to Japanese food as it was significantly classier and more lucrative. She spoke with the Chinese chef in Chinese about Japanese omakase, an experience that she would not have known how to relate to her parents, who were taught to loathe the Japanese. Well, or her grandparents, who lived through the Sino-Japanese War and did loathe the Japanese. But she felt little animosity towards the Japanese. And that kind of history was not hers, as she had grown up here and was dating a guy who made things out of mud. <laughs> After their Boston meal, she researched places in New York. Omakase, she realized, suited them in different ways. They both liked the element of surprise, but she could second-guess herself with long menus, and he preferred to go with the flow. She had taught him that in Japanese, omakase means, I'll leave it up to you, and that the end of each meal, she paid. Logical, as she made more, and trying omakase had become one of their things. She liked that they had things. What about that place in Boston? The woman interjected. Remember, the one I took you to? The first time you had omakase. While she said this, the woman wondered if she was being too defensive, but she said it anyway. Right, the man said without glancing at her. So where did you work again? He asked the chef. A restaurant near Wall Street, he said. He then gave the name, but it was not one either the man or the woman recognized. You might not know it, he said. It was exclusive, very fancy. We didn't open every day and only by reservation. To reserve, you called a number that was passed by word of mouth. Then you asked for the manager, and to reserve a table, the manager had to know you, otherwise he would hang up. You're kidding, said the man. Then he looked at the woman and asked if she heard that. Of course she had heard. The chef wasn't whispering. The man leaned over the bar so that his upper body was now over the trays of nori and bowl of soy sauce. 
He was leaning on his elbows like a little boy waiting for a treat from someone in the kitchen. Adorable, the woman thought, and suddenly felt fine again. So, I'm guessing you got tired of that, the man said. Dealing with the rich? No. Oh, it was probably stressful. A place like that made you work terrible hours. All those private parties? No. And not being able to make whatever you wanted. You probably got some strange requests. Yes, but that's not the reason I was fired. Fired? Yes. The man looked even more interested. Did you hear that? He said to the woman. To him, a high-class chef who had been fired meant a chef with a rogue streak, which was something the man tended to respect. Also, he was getting drunk. The sake bottle was empty, and the waitress had brought another. Fired for what? The man asked. He offered the chef a cup of sake, but the chef declined. The woman turned her own cup in her hands and stared at the wall behind the chef that had a painting of the great Japanese wave about to crush three tiny boats. The woman liked that she and the man worked in different fields. It meant little competition between them, and what they had in common was genuine. The man had no interest in money, and that intrigued her. He seemed a free spirit, but how was he alive today if he didn't care about money? She, on the other hand, was more concerned with practicalities, her job. She was good at it. Bankers, he sometimes said to his artsy friends when she made practical remarks about how they were going to split the checks. After he said that, he did one of his comical eye rolls to show everyone that he was kidding. When she asked him about it later, why he had done that, he put a hand on her head and said she was overthinking it. He was only teasing her because he was so proud of her. She did something that he couldn't in a million years do. Numbers, graphs, models. The work was necessary. And you're able to do this because, well, let's just face it, you're smarter than me. After the man said that, the woman felt a happy balloon rise from her stomach to her mouth. Fired for what? The chef did not answer right away. Instead, he washed his hands, which were now covered in red slime, and picked up the blowtorch to sear the skin of a nearby salmon. A year into dating, she took the man to meet her parents. They lived in a cookie-cutter suburb in Springfield, Massachusetts. Her father worked for a company that designed prosthetic limbs, and her mother stayed at home. In China, they had different jobs. Her father was a professor, and her mother was a chatty sales clerk, but their success in those roles hinged on them being loquacious and witty in their native language, none of which translated into English. Every now and then, her father went out for academic jobs and would make it as far as the interview stage, where he had to teach a class for which he would dress sharply and prepare careful notes. Then during the class, the only question he got was whether he could please repeat something by some smirking kids in the back. Her mother took a job at JCPenney, but eventually quit. An efficient sales clerk in China followed the customer from place to place, but no one wanted her mother to do that at JCPenney. In fact, her mother was frequently reported for looking like a thief. <laughs> Nevertheless, her parents were now comfortable in their 2,600-square-foot house that had a plastic mailbox with a plastic flag. As a child, the woman didn't like the suburbs, as every house looked the same. But the sameness is what her parents liked, because from the brick facade, you could not tell that a Chinese family lived inside. 
not that her parents were ashamed of being Chinese, and they taught their daughter likewise. You are just as good as anyone else, they said, even before she realized that that was a thought she was supposed to have. Her parents hugged the man. The woman had brought home other guys before, but no hugs were ever given. Though this was the first she had brought home in a while. Unfortunately, that made the question of race even harder to answer, as he was the first non-Asian boyfriend she had introduced. So, were her parents being welcoming out of relief that their daughter would not die a spinster? Or out of surprise that she, as her friends had pointed out, got lucky? Like every complex question in life, it was probably a mixture of both. But was it a 50-50 mix or 20-80? And if the latter, which was the 80 and which was the 20? <laughs> Throughout the weekend, the woman's brain went into overdrive. She watched the man help her mother bring in groceries, and then the man help her father shovel the driveway. She was in disbelief when her father went out and came home with a bottle of whiskey. She didn't know her father drank whiskey. She then had to recalculate the 50-50 division to take into account the whiskey. For each meal, her mother set out a pair of chopsticks and also cutlery. When the man chose the chopsticks, her parents smiled at the man as if he were the monkey who had correctly put the square peg into the square hole. That he could use chopsticks and use them correctly elicited another smile and a clap. Then they complimented him from the color of his hair down to the color of his shoes, which he announced each time that he was leaving at the door. The woman was glad that her parents had dispelled the cliché of difficult Asian parents. Previously, she had explained to the man that her parents could be cold, but the coldness was more a reflex from years of being invisible rather than their natural states. Now the woman wondered why her parents hadn't been more difficult. Or why hadn't her father been more American and greeted the man at the door with a gun? <laughs> By Sunday, her mother had pulled her aside to say that she should consider moving to New York. The man had thrown the idea out there, and the woman was still considering how to respond. I'm not sure yet, the woman replied to her mother. We're both going to see what kind of job opportunities come up. Her mother nodded and said thinking it through was good. Then she reminded the woman to not wait around for an answer from the sky, as the sky is just the sky. <laughs> for their last piece of omakase, the chef presented both of them the classic tamago egg on sushi rice. The egg was fluffy and sweet. How is it? the chef asked. He asked this question after every course, with his shoulders slumped forward, and their response that it was the best tamago egg they've had pushed his shoulders back like a strong wind. The Japanese way, the woman thought. Or perhaps the Asian way. Or perhaps the human way. Dessert was two scoops of mocha ice cream. For the remainder of the meal, the man kept asking the chef why he'd gotten fired. Another bottle of sake had arrived. It's nothing interesting, the chef said. I doubt that. Come on, we're all friends here. The man said that even though neither he nor the woman knew the chef's name and vice versa. During the meal, no one else had come into the restaurant. People stopped by the window and looked at the menu, but moved on. Management, the chef finally said. He was finished making them sushi and had nothing more to do but clean and re-clean the counter that he had just cleaned. Oh? 
the woman said with a question mark. At this point, she thought she might as well know the story. I was fired three weeks ago, the chef said. The manager is Chinese and had booked a party of 50 on a day I had off. When he called me in, I tried to say no, but the party was for one of our regulars. So I said I couldn't serve 50 alone, and he agreed to call backup. When I got there, no one had come. The manager said he asked, but the other chefs must have forgotten. I'm not an idiot. I knew that was a lie. I only made sushi for two people, and eventually the entire party left. Bold, said the man. Typical, said the chef. The woman didn't say anything. There was a piece of egg stuck in the back of her molars, and she was trying to get it out with her tongue. When she couldn't, she used her fingers. She stuck her fingers into the back of her mouth. Then she wiped the foamy piece of egg on the napkin. I'm Chinese, the woman said reflexively, the way her parents might have. The chef went back to cleaning his counter. The man cleared his throat. He said, not specifically to the woman or the chef, but to an invisible audience, that's not what the chef meant. I know, the woman said. She was looking at the man. I know that's not what he meant. I just wanted to put that out there. I don't mean anything by it either. The man rolled his eyes, and a spike of anger went through the woman. Or maybe two spikes. She imagined taking two everyday toothpicks and sticking them through the man's nice brown eyes to stop them from rolling. <laughs> then she imagined making herself a very dry martini with a skewer of olives. <laughs> Sorry, the chef said. He was rearranging the boxes of sesame seeds and bonito flakes. He was smiling, but not making eye contact. In a moment, he would start humming, and the woman would not be able to tell if he was sorry for what he said, or sorry that she was Chinese. If a mix, she wanted to ask how much of each, but then she would sound insane. She didn't want to sound insane, yet she also didn't want to stay a quiet little lotus. So there she was, saying nothing, but oscillating between these two extremes. In truth, what could she say? The chef was over 60 years old, and the Chinese, or so she's heard, are the cheapest of the cheap. The man never called her babe. Babe, said the man. I think you've had enough to drink. Then he turned to the chef. Time to go, methinks. The chef only spoke to the waitress after that. He called her over to help the couple settle the bill. The woman put her credit card down while the man pretended not to notice. She tipped her normal 20%. What was that? The man said once they were outside. It had gotten colder. It would take them 15 minutes to walk home. I'm not mad at him, the woman said. And you shouldn't be. He was just telling a story. Again, I'm not mad at him. The man understood. They walked in silence for a while before he said, Babe, I wasn't the one who told the story, and you have to learn not to take everything so personally. Do I? Also, you have to be a little more self-aware. Aware of what? The man sighed. Aware of what? The man said, Never mind. 
Then he put a hand on her head and told her to stop overthinking it. That was Jennifer Lim performing Waikiki Wang's Omakase. I'm Michael Cerverus. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Cullman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Additional support for this program comes from this station. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space 